Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics which are going to educate and empower others and give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. All right, we are in full swing in the fall when you guys are hearing this. And yeah, feels like three months ago. (laughs) Feels like we're in the same thing. So we kind of, you know, the trend of our episodes as we get back into the swing of things here in September is to try and provide you with as much information from what we're finding from professionals. So today we have a pediatric neuropsychologist who is going to kind of talk about what happened you know, pre-COVID with this testing, obviously, what happened at the start of COVID and how we've, you know, have gone to her for, you know, moving forward. So this obviously included the summer and well into the fall. So Dr. Ariel Eckfeld, did I, I always have the hardest time. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be talking with you guys. So can you give us a little bit of background about how you kind of found yourself as a pediatric neuropsychologist? Of course. So again, I'm Dr. Eckfeld. I've been always very interested in brain behavior relationships, right? So how do things that happen in our mind and our brain affect the way that we interact with people or how we do it at school or later on in work settings? So I've always been really fascinated by that. And through graduate school and beyond that, um, I realized that this vacuum was really a great way to dive into that. And more importantly, it allows us to help kids who are struggling, right? Because if we know more about what's going on with them, we can also know more about how to help them. So I went to UCLA for clinical psychology graduate school and worked a lot in children's hospitals and medical centers, primarily because I think that's where you see a lot of kids who tend to be struggling the most. Um, mm-hmm. Also worked in school settings and ended up after working at Chalk Children's Hospital for a few years in private practice. That's where I'm at now. And doing the such important work. I mean, when we talk about being able to help the kids that we help and that we try to advocate for, we can't really get anywhere unless we have an assessment. And not just any assessment, but a good quality assessment. And it's unfortunate that a lot of families get assessments nowadays, whether it's from the school district or for different agencies that are just very minimal, that just scratch the surface. And so like what you guys really do is, is more in-depth, more comprehensive assessments of what these kids brains kind of can do and what their potential is. Can you talk a little bit about like how your assessment might differ from a traditional school psychologist assessment? Yeah, you made some really good points. A school psychologist, they do a lot of really great work, but their focus is on how the kid is doing in the academic setting, which makes sense, right? They're in the school. But a neuropsychologist sees the academic part as just a small piece of the puzzle. I always tell families, your kid is a puzzle and the more pieces we can put together to fit that puzzle, the more we'll know about them, right? Uh-huh. And ultimately lead to better services. So I look at academic achievement across all the different areas, but I'm also looking at things like their language skills, how they express themselves and understand other people. I'm also looking at higher order skills like planning and organizing. How do they problem solve and how do they think flexibly? All those things impact academics, but is separate from just how do I read and how do I spell and how do I do math. I also look at things like memory. How well do they recall verbal information or visual information? 
Um, I look at their attention. And then I also look at things like behavior. You know, what are parents concerned about? What are teachers concerned about? What are their concerns? What's harder for them? We all have things that are harder for us compared to other people or compared to other areas. I was always better at math than I was at history, right? So how do we get all this information to get a, a profile of strengths and weaknesses that we can then implement into some sort of treatment or intervention approach? Um, so again, not just testing, not just sitting with the kid and doing tests, but also getting lots of pieces of information from people who know them best, how they do in their day-to-day -day lives, and then fitting that together to figure out how we can help. Right. And that figuring out how we can help is, is probably the most crucial, right? Because a lot of times we get testing done, and it's a lot of numbers, it's a lot of facts, it's a lot of figures, but there's not really much explanation of how do we how are we connecting these dots? Like right. a child is struggling, we have scores on different tests that are showing they're below average or there's deficits in certain areas, but how does it connect? And that's where I think the majority of the disagreement comes with between families and schools sometimes is how is it affecting their academics or just how is it affecting their daily lives? And so that explanation and analysis of you know, how is it impacting or how maybe how it may impact in the future because maybe the child's compensating right now because they're really young. And then how, where do we go from there? Right, exactly. And I think all the areas that you had just listed are areas that we see on the school assessments. And Amanda and I have said this several times on the podcast. Typically, the the numbers don't lie. It's the interpretation of those numbers that we have some issues with. And, you know, quite frankly, just reviewing just recently a school psychoed, and it was like all the pieces were there. And then it made no conclusion. And sometimes they say, like, it's an IEP team decision. That's great. But, you know, at the same time, if I'm a speech and language pathologist and the child has a speech and language impediment that only a speech and language pathologist would identify, it's not necessarily an IEP team decision. And, and that's the school psych that, you know, nobody else in that room. I mean, yes, maybe a teacher might have a background or an administrator. But, you know, we look to them for their expertise <laughs> in trying to, to provide recommendations. And I think that that's why some of our clients will go to a neurological neurologist, or not even a neurologist, excuse me, the specific neurological testing that you complete because not only is academics in there, but it's putting all those pieces together like you were saying so that that information can be shared with the district to kind of bridge, you know, the two. And I would say that's where a neuropsychologist's strength really lies, being able to integrate all the data in a meaningful way. Because right. you're right, numbers are numbers, right? And sometimes even the numbers don't translate to real life. Our tests are not indicative of real life sometimes. So you have to be able to take a step back and integrate all of that with what the parents are saying, what the teachers are saying, right? With therapists who are working with the child and seeing what are the difficulties they're seeing in day-to-day -day life. How does that relate to your scores? And how do you put that all together? Yeah. And I, I say that's that's something that, especially our kids that like are right on the cusp that are um, not quite failing everything, but the family kind of feels like something is going wrong and the school will say, well, yeah, there's these, these scores that are lower, but you know, it's regarding, you know, whatever area and, you know, say, let's say working memory, that's going to affect their language skills and they're doing fine in English language arts. But when you really look at what is fine really mean, the student, I had a kiddo who their intellectual ability, they should have been, I mean, they were a very bright kid, 
Mm-hmm. And, but he was getting like C's on worksheets and tests. And so it was like there was clearly it wasn't fine because it maybe was fine in the grand scheme of things and maybe the class average was a C, but for him, he should have been getting A's. When we really looked at, and he got some neurological testing, and we really looked at, you know, where was the difficulty line, it was, well, he'd do a worksheet and he was expected to do, to write a paragraph about a topic. And he was writing three words, which is a sentence, so he was getting some credit and they were like, well, he's filling it out. He's just not filling out enough, so it's a matter of his effort. But in reality, he couldn't um, pull from his working memory the information he learned during instruction, so he couldn't put enough on the paper to be able to demonstrate what he learned. And so that that was a bigger issue, but if if you just look at, oh, well, he's getting a C, he's not failing, it's easy to overlook that. But you have to kind of, when you're talking about putting all the pieces together, you really need to have someone who's an expert look at that and say, this is pinpointing like this is the problem. Right. So I want to clarify a few things. So, because we've, we've brought up neurological. So I definitely don't do anything neurological mm-hmm. in terms of what neurologists will do. Right. But I think we have similar interests in how to figure out what's going on in the brain and, and how it's influencing things. I also think that, you know, Teachers have a good point. They see a lot of kids and they can get a sense of when effort is not there. And I think that's an important piece to consider. But again, it's just a piece of a larger picture. So as part of testing, we do look at things like effort and motivation. Um, But it's also true that you're less likely to put in effort and motivation when things are hard for you. So why are they hard, right? And that goes back to the underlying issues of what's making you not want to engage in this. Why is this so challenging for you? Yeah, that's a good point because, you know, it all is interconnected and it's about yeah. how we're classifying and we, we say this all the time. There's not really such thing as a lazy second grader. They're not just choosing I'm going to be lazy and not do my work. There's very few young kids that are like that. Most of them do want to do their best effort. So if they're, if it's seeming like they're not giving their best effort, why? And we need to be looking into that. Right. Right. Someone could be struggling in a class because they have difficulties paying attention, but that difficulty paying attention could be because they don't understand the teacher's language. They have trouble hearing, right? There's so many different reasons. So we have to dig deep and figure out why. And so when you were like assessing a child, obviously before COVID, it would kind of like you had already mentioned, it'd be a series of the traditional testing that we may see on uh, psychoeducational evaluations. And then you're getting feedback. Maybe you're having the teachers kind of fill out some things. Obviously, you're talking to the parents, getting all that background information. How has that changed since COVID? I know for a period of time, you know, everything was just kind of at a standstill. So that was probably March to to May, June, I would say. What kind of prompted you? Did you start assessing over the summer in person? Kind of, if you could kind of walk us through that. Yeah, I think while therapy and psychologists were very well set up to do therapy remotely, neuropsychologists really weren't because so much of what we do is in person with the kids. Right. So it took us a little bit of time to figure out how do we adapt. And so a lot of effort was put into figuring out, can we do things virtually? And if so, what? And if not, is there a way to kind of safely do things in person? And a lot of that is just rolling with the times right. um, and seeing how things are trending. This is really an unprecedented situation. So our clinic side, we definitely put a halt in doing anything in person around mid-March or so. 
Um, but we continue to do initial interviews. So I always start an evaluation by chatting with the parents, meeting with the kids, um, doing some record reviews. So all of that continued in March, April, and May. And then once it was seemed safer to start resuming some things in person, that's when I started doing testing. So that was probably about maybe three, four weeks ago or so. So we still do interviews remotely yeah. through the computer, meeting with the families initially, getting all the background information. And then I try to do um, no more than two, three sessions with each kid, depending on how it goes. You have to be flexible in general. So some kids can do, you know, six hours of testing with a lunch break and some can do two hours and they're done for the day. So that flexibility has remained. And it's and actually probably been even more so at the forefront of our thoughts because COVID has been a challenging time and a stressful time all around. So there's a lot of safety protocols that we have in place right now when we do in-person testing. We have doors open, so we're kind of adjacent to an outdoor area. And we have filters in place. We're wearing masks. There's a lot of safety protocols that we do. And all of this, of course, influences potentially how we interpret results. Right. Any changes in how things are created and standardized means that they could potentially impact our results. So I think even more so, neuropsychologists have to be cautious in what they're, how they're interpreting what they're seeing. So is this kid distracted because of the stress and anxiety related to the COVID pandemic? or because of some of the outdoor noises that are coming into our testing right. now that weren't there before. I know that we've, you know, everybody's just trying to figure out <laughs> what to do. And, you know, just like anything that was, you know, pre-COVID, some districts will do it one way, others will do it another way. So, you know, we've had a lot of clients come to us and say, oh, well, you know, they're doing all this testing virtual. Should I go get this testing? Or I should, you know, it's been difficult to try and navigate that because at the end of the day, you might have a district that is like, yeah, whatever testing you can get outside that, you know, will hold it as valid, da, da, da. And then you have others that are like, absolutely not gonna look at this. This isn't by the protocols or, you know, whatever, whatever. So, so, you know, I think for, you know, our listeners, it's this is a very challenging time. You know, I don't think that we can keep saying maybe in March, April, if we were saying, let's just wait for the fall to see if we can do in-person right. testing. You know, obviously the fall is here. Um, it's happening. And so we've had to, it's very case by case, which I'm sure just like with you in how you were performing the evaluations, what the child can take. And like, you know, you said how much of a trauma not being in school has presented. Maybe the family took an entire break over the summer and from March to like the kids been on a break since March, right? And that's okay, <laughs> but that's hard to get into the swing of things, right? So it's been a very challenging time. It's been very interesting to say the I least. I wanted to point something out that you had said, um, you were talking about, you know, if there's distractors and obviously this is a different environment, if you have to have masks or you have to have the door open and everything and so, you need to, as a professional, take that into account when you're interpreting the results. But I do want to mention that that doesn't necessarily mean that the whole test is going to be marked invalid. And I see that because I've been talking over the summer with certain school districts about getting testing done because some testing in like in this environment is better than no testing. If we're talking about having to wait for the perfect environment, right. we're not going to have one. The same as when we have a child who has behaviors or has attention issues, we already have assessments that have the little asterisks and say, you know, these results need to be interpreted carefully because this factor may have impacted. So we already know that school districts are willing to consider results that have these 
you know, clarifications or these cautions, right? So just because we have to have these cautions doesn't mean that the testimony isn't valid. And I do know that some school districts are already trying to make that argument to be able to say, oh, we can't make eligibility determinations of these assessments. But like, can you talk about why that might not be necessarily true? Because you can still have valid results, even if you have to interpret cautiously, right? Yeah, I think, you know, again, there are neuropsychologists who've been doing completely virtual assessments during this period. And I think it's always a matter of assessing what you're comfortable with, what the family's comfortable with, what's safe in terms of a bigger kind of public health perspective. But whatever method you choose to do, it always comes back, as we said, to interpretation. So you can make valid interpretations about a child's functioning in this moment. You can also make interpretations about what you think is going to be helpful for them, knowing again that the numbers may be less accurate, right? But the numbers itself don't always tell you all the information, okay? right? So that's it's hard to to kind of go into it with the schools because, as right. you mentioned, the schools are making these decisions on a right. case by case basis, right. not only in terms of students but in terms of the actual schools and the districts. Yep. And that was one of my hesitations about doing these virtual assessments because. At times, schools can be very hesitant to accept outside evaluations in general. Right. And any additional kind of power for them to fight back is going to make things more challenging for families. We want to make things less challenging for them. Right. So of course. that was my rationale for trying to do as much in-person as possible. But no matter what method you choose, the results are going to tell you something useful about this child, how they're functioning, what supports they need going forward. And just like any other child who's struggling, you may need to reevaluate them over time, maybe even more so in terms of the current setting, but that doesn't take away from the information right now. And I would say the kind of um, cautions that you're having to take of having the door open, having the mask, things that may have made distraction, actually in this day and time may be more accurate to the child's functioning yeah. because when we go back to school, most likely that's going to be what's happening. Kids may have to wear masks. We may have to have, you know, wider settings. We may have some, you know, open air situations. It's going to result in more distractions anyway. So it may be something where, well, you know, this is kind of going more closely to the environment that the child is going to be when school starts. Yeah, and that's always been the drawback with testing environments in general. It's very structured. It's very one-on-one. It's extremely distraction-free, which gives you a good estimate of the child's kind of foundational skills, right? a true estimate of their abilities, but it doesn't always tell you what they look like in a real-life environment. Mm-hmm. And so that has been one advantage of doing both tele-interviews, seeing what they're like at home, and also having these more kind of realistic environments where there are distractions, there are noises and things out the window just like they have at school. And I mean, even if you were to do an observation in a school setting, if it was, you know, 20 minutes, you know, one time, you know, we get that all the time as well, not just from the school districts, but even from judges who are questioning, you know, the amount of time that the private evaluator has had with the child. So, I mean, that was just kind of a a glimpse into like what we obviously saw before, but what we're currently seeing. And like I said, you know, there's going to be some districts that are going to be okay with it. Some are going to need to be talked into it. Um, and some are just going to fight it till the end. That was the same before COVID and it continues to be. It's just a different 
argument, if you will, that they're using. <laughs> and that's why, you know, we wanted to make sure that, you know, whatever decision the parent makes, you know, whether they want the testing or not, at least that they know, you know, some have been doing it tell us since this time. And that's useful because maybe they've had a little bit more practice while others are doing the in-person. But, you know, not one is not going to be better than the other just because that interpretation is vital, right? Yeah, I think the most important piece is find a skilled provider. Right. Yeah. right. That's hard. It's hard for parents to know what does that mean? Right. How, right. What does that look like? How do I know if they're good or not? Right. Right. Um, that is something that our field struggles with in general. But I would tell parents, you know, if you're looking for something comprehensive, find a neuropsychologist, someone who has expertise with kids, someone who's done at least two years of postgraduate work in neuropsychology, so they've had a lot of experience and time with it, and ask questions, right? Yeah. And sometimes it's hard to even know what questions to ask, but the more people you talk to, the more you know, of course, the easier this will be for you. And I mean, I think we also say just kind of go with your gut as well. You know, just the the interactions, you know, some people have better bedside manner than others. It just depends. We're all different. And there is somebody out there that can give you that information that you've been looking for. And although, you know, parents sometimes hope that that would be the school psychologist, that's not the case. And that's why, you know, they have to sometimes go outside of the school district to get even more of that information. So we really appreciate you kind of explaining and giving that great advice at the end as to how parents can kind of try to find a a qualified provider during this time. How can parents reach out to you if they're interested in getting to know you a little bit more? (laughs) So I'm a part of a clinic, the Mind Health Institute Newport Beach. We have a website, mhi-nb for newportbeach.com. My information is on that page. Um, They can also call to find out more information about our services, which include not only testing, but therapy and um, psychiatry as well. And that number is 949-891-0307. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on and just trying to help us kind of get through what it is that we need for this upcoming school year. I know it was a quick one, you guys, but we hope that you enjoyed it. Amanda and I are just getting through this time, and I know I like went straight for it um, at the beginning, so we didn't get to do our little chat, but if people are sticking around, maybe they can hear a little bit about it now. Same old with you, Amanda? With me? Yeah. We might have to do an update later by the time this drops, because I might have a little one with me by then, yeah. actually, I better... Yeah. He better not last that long. No, I don't <laughs> think he'll last that long. I, he'll probably be early. Like, just you in general as a person are early places. So I have a feeling he will be early as well. But I don't know. We'll see. We'll definitely provide an update to you guys. Obviously, we are trying to get in as many recordings as we can. You know, it's been a, a hectic time. And the fall is has been hectic for us, just like for everybody else. So we hope you guys are hanging in there. And we hope that you are enjoying these uh, recordings and we'll keep doing it. <laughs> so. Yeah, but keep taking a look at our, our social media pages, our Facebook, our Instagram, you know, as always are going to be our most up to date on information, whether it's regarding COVID and school closures, opening back up for the fall, all of that, or just any other um, news related items. Our Facebook 
group, our Facebook page, and our Instagram account are always going to be the most up-to-date, especially if you're maybe new to the podcast and you're listening to our early or later episodes. Always go ahead and check our Instagram and Facebook, just Inclusive Education Project on all those sites. Absolutely. We will talk to you guys next week. Bye. Bye.